I want to take a moment this morning and, and just say um, a few what I think are important and timely words. Just over a year ago, we entered into this pandemic experience, and I remember hearing someone say, we need to flatten the curve, and I said, the curve, what, what curve? What are we supposed to flatten? And I heard about flattening the curve before I heard about COVID-19. And uh, I think for a lot of us, back about a year ago, there was a lot of a lot of turmoil and a lot of uh, trying to figure out what all of this meant. And it's been a hard year on several levels for many of us. One of the things that we have realized as pastors and elders here at LifePoint is that we uh, did a really poor job of caring for our congregation over this past year reaching out to those who were not here, uh, those who may have been hurting. We didn't have a system uh, for anything like what we've experienced. And uh, we are developing that system now, a little late for the pandemic, but we're developing it. But I, I just want, as the pastor, um, the one you know where the, where the buck stops, to say to you, I'm sorry. Uh, we realize that we blew it. In, in caring for all of the people of our church and uh, seek your forgiveness and just let you know that we, uh, we've realized it and we're, we're, we're moving to develop a better system, a better network for caring for everyone within our congregation. So this morning we are in um, <clears throat> the sixth message in this series the Apostles' Creed, Ancient Future Christianity. And uh, now that you've sat down, will you stand with me again? Let's declare our faith together in the words of the Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to Hades. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning we're, uh, we're unpacking that line in the Apostles' Creed that reads, He descended into Hades. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. And to get at the meaning of this statement, um, I want to raise and answer four questions. Uh, did Jesus really die, first of all? And you can go ahead and fill in the blanks here. Did Jesus really die? Did Jesus descend into hell, which uh, many of you memorized the creed with the word hell there. We're going to talk about that this morning. Third, did Jesus really rise from the dead? And then fourth, why does it matter? Why does it matter? So let's begin with that first question. Did Jesus really die? Did he really die? It's actually a, a bit of a review question because we addressed it last week, but I I wanted to start here because it provides us with a reference point and it builds a bridge between last week's message and this one. 
You know, whenever I come to this question of did Jesus really die, I'm reminded of Charles Dickens' statement in the fourth paragraph of the first chapter of his Christmas carol, where he wrote that there is no doubt that Marley was dead. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the story I'm going to relate. Uh, In the same way, if anything wonderful can come of our exploration of this part of the Apostles' Creed, we need to understand distinctly that Jesus was dead. Not like in a fictional novel, but rather in the manner of historical fact. We've seen that his death was anticipated by the prophets. It was witnessed by all those who were there throughout the six hours that Jesus hung on the cross, and including the women, uh, John, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, others. It was confirmed by the centurion whom Pilate sent to investigate, as well as by the Jewish authorities. And as we saw last week, it was unanimously asserted by each of the New Testament writers, recorded for posterity as well by historians of the day, such as Josephus and Tacitus. And there really was no disagreement among anyone alive at the time, whether Jew or Gentile, who had reason or opportunity to speak to the matter, that Jesus had died, that he was dead. There have nevertheless been in those in more recent times who have challenged the very fact of his death. One of the prominent theories that's been put forth is what's known as the swoon theory. Can you say swoon? Swoon. Say it long. Swoon. There you go. The swoon theory suggests that Jesus really didn't die, but after having been flogged and scourged and crucified and having a spear thrust into his side, he was just left in an unconscious or comatose state. But then in the cool dampness of the tomb, he revived, regained his strength sufficient to roll the stone away to overcome multiple highly trained Roman guards and go on his way. Ergo, he didn't die. He just swooned. And I think those who set forth the swoon theory also promised a bridge in Brooklyn to anyone who would believe it. But don't you believe it. That that bridge won't take you anywhere you really want to go. The version of the Apostles' Creed that I chose for this series, and there are there's really only one Apostles' Creed, but there are slight variations in language uh, between those used by various churches and denominations. The, the version that I chose states that having died and been buried, Jesus descended into Hades. And, of course, earlier versions of the creed say that he descended into hell. Many of you memorized it that way. And we need to ask this morning, uh, did he? Did he? Did Jesus descend into hell? It's my understanding that the earliest manuscripts of the creed did not include this line at all. It didn't say he descended into hell. It didn't say he descended into Hades. Uh, There was no mention of either of those in 
the originals. So it was clearly a later edition. It wasn't until the 4th century, in fact, that this line became established in the Apostles' Creed. It disappeared for another couple of hundred years, made a return, and has been present ever since. Nevertheless, many churches, many faith traditions reject the idea outright and refuse to include it in their recitations. Uh, And I will admit to you that I was tempted to do the same, to simply bypass it. However, I recognize that many of you grew up in traditions where you recited the Apostles' Creed in your church and that for many it has created a measure of confusion. And my purpose in this series is to help you to understand and to embrace sound doctrine. What, after all, does this mean? There is, in fact, some biblical warrant for this statement. But as always, we have to be careful not to go beyond what the Bible teaches, beyond what it reveals. So one of the questions that we need to ask at this point, and and to answer, hopefully in a satisfactory way, is whether Jesus gave us any indication of where he would be and what he would be doing during the time between his death at approximately 3 p.m. on Friday afternoon and his resurrection in the early morning on the third day, which was Sunday In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus said to some scribes and Pharisees that the experience of the prophet Jonah provided a foreshadowing of his own coming death and burial. Matthew 12, verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I happen to believe that the story of Jonah is a true story, not a parable, not not fictitious in any way, but a true story. And Jesus treats it that way. He chooses a true story to illustrate what will be his true story. So Jesus was saying that in the interim between his death and his resurrection, in this case, that he would be in the heart of the earth which I take simply to be a metaphor for the tomb. But wait, there's more. Luke records this interaction between Jesus and two criminals, or one criminal who who was crucified. No, two criminals, I'm sorry, who were crucified on either side of him. Luke 23, beginning at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise in paradise. So on the basis of his simple, somewhat fragmentary faith, Jesus granted that man salvation. 
And he promised today you will be with me in paradise. So in that statement, Jesus also indicated that while his body was laying in Joseph's tomb, he himself was going somewhere. He identifies that as paradise. Saying that the redeemed criminal would also be joining him there. Interesting, isn't it? The word paradise, by the way, is a Persian word. It simply means gardens. And it's reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. So what do you guys think? Was was Jesus in promising the man that he would join him in paradise? Was he talking about a vacation in the tropics? I don't think so either. In fact, I think he was talking about something infinitely better. There are two words that the Bible uses to describe where human beings go immediately upon death. They are in Hebrew, Sheol, or usually we pronounce it Sheol, and in Greek, Hades or Hades. In Old Testament Israel, everyone, absolutely everyone, whether righteous or unrighteous, expected that when they died, they would go to the realm of the dead, which they called Sheol. In New Testament times, the concept of Sheol was paralleled by the Greek concept of Hades. And again, Hades was understood to be the destination of all who died, the righteous and the unrighteous. So Sheol and Hades describe in two different languages and from two different cultures the very same thing, the very same place. There's a third word, of course, isn't there, which is hell, by which these days we mean the place of final, permanent condemnation and eternal torment of the unrighteous away from the presence of the Lord. But at the same time that the Apostles' Creed was translated into English, the Anglo-Saxon word hell didn't have that connotation of finality. It didn't have that sense of permanence. It wasn't the ultimate end. In common use at that time, uh, it meant pretty much the same thing as Sheol or Hades. It was kind of the first stop uh, on your way to your eternal destination. It meant the place of the departed, but until around the 17th century, uh, it, had, it didn't have that sense of finality. We'll hold that in mind, Sheol, Hades, hell. In Psalm 16, King David says to God, My heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for... You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Hmm. In Old Testament times, most people understood this to be a messianic prophecy. And in fact, in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, that was recorded in the second chapter of Acts, Peter indicates that the words 
that David's words used in Psalm 16 are actually prophetic, that they pointed beyond David to his best-known descendant, Messiah Jesus. Here's what he said on that day. He said, men of Israel, this is the day of Pentecost, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I love that statement. Death couldn't hold him. It was impossible for him to be held by death. He goes on and he says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Now listen, here's, here's where he goes. He says, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. See, and it's Hades there, not Sheol. Different time, different culture. You'll not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And so Peter offers this these final Summary words, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn him an oath, sworn with an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. See, what the creed is expressing then is that Jesus entered not hell, but Hades or Sheol. Go with me then to Luke 16, where we find Jesus telling the story that we know as the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Some say that this is a parable, that this is just uh, one of Jesus' many parables. Others claim that it's not just a parable, but a true story, a story that only Jesus could have known, and pointing out that in none of the parables does Jesus ever use proper names, but here he does. He names the man. His name is Lazarus. Well, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day, a wealthy dude. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. Notice that he's outside the gate. He's poor, Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to the bosom of Abraham. Just uh, draw a circle around that with your pen or your mind. Carried by the angels to the bosom of Abraham. The rich man also died uh, 
and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. A couple observations. Lazarus is at one point, at the beginning of the story, is outside the gate. At the end, <coughs> metaphorically, at least, the, the rich man is outside the gate. He's far off and he's in anguish. Another observation that I think is is interesting here is that even in Hades, in anguish, the rich man expects Lazarus to be his servant. Some things never change. But the real thrust of this teaching is that both Lazarus and the rich man went to Hades, the real thrust for our purposes this morning. Both Lazarus and the rich man went to Hades, the realm of the dead. Lazarus went to one region of Hades. The rich man went to another. Lazarus went to the bosom of Abraham, it's called. A place seemingly of comfort, a place of consolation, a place of blessing. It's the abode of Abraham and his offspring who have been justified by faith. The rich man, on the other hand, went to a place of torment, in fact, That's exactly what he calls it in verse 28. Earlier in verse 24, he said, I am in anguish in this flame. So for the righteous, we might think of Hades as the precursor to heaven. And for the unrighteous, we should think of it as the precursor to hell, to final condemnation away from the Lord. I find it more than just interesting that Jesus recognized that the no longer rich man was able to see Abraham. He was able to see Lazarus from where he was. So notice that Hades is not a place of soul sleep. We don't just kind of go into an unconscious state. Rather, it's a place of complete consciousness, of awareness, of recognition, of remembrance, of sensation. The no longer rich man saw and recognized Abraham. 
He saw and recognized Lazarus. He remembered his family. He remembered his past life. He was able to articulate thoughts and feelings. But Hades is also a place of separation. Abraham says to the no longer rich man, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass over from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. There's a permanence about the separation already in Hades. And it's irreversible. The Bible says that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment, our eternal destination, is determined before we die, not after. The Bible never talks about any second chances. When Jesus said to the criminal on the cross, then today you will be with me in paradise, what was he saying? Well, here's, here's what I believe. I believe that he was referring to Hades, the realm of the dead, but specifically that portion that that in this story of Lazarus and the rich man is referred to as the bosom of Abraham. That is, that paradise and the bosom of Abraham are synonymous terms. Is there any warrant for the notion that Jesus descended into what the Bible refers to as hell. The book of Revelation tells us why Jesus would not and could not have actually done that. For one thing, hell wasn't even open for business yet. Realize that? Hell is not open for business even now. Um, the biblical doctrine of hell as, as that place of final, final and permanent condemnation, of eternal torment, is identical to the lake of fire that's described in Revelation 20. And that chapter tells us that the first occupants of the lake of fire will be the beast and the false prophet. And then Satan and all who followed him. And finally, death and Hades itself will be thrown into the lake of fire. Long before that paradise will have been vacated, because Christ will have taken all believers home to heaven. Well, I've spent more time on this than I meant to, but let me make one more point and we'll move on. If we were to accept the notion that Jesus actually descended into hell itself, we would have to acknowledge two significant implications. First, we would have to acknowledge that when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, it really wasn't. And Jesus either deliberately lied or he was confused and mistaken. And if either of those things are true, then he isn't God and he can't be our Savior. Secondly, we would have to acknowledge that Jesus, in order to make atonement and and accomplish our salvation, after being crucified and dying, also had to be punished in hell. But there isn't a hint of this idea anywhere in Scripture. Why? Because it really was finished on the cross. When Jesus, in his final words from the cross, said, It is finished to tell us die, paid in full, 
everything that was necessary for our salvation had been accomplished. Well, here's the next question. Did Jesus then really rise from the dead? Opponents of the Christian faith have, of course, offered their own objections and alternate theories. There there was, of course, the stolen body theory that was first circulated by the Jewish authorities. In fact, they paid the soldiers who had been assigned to guard Jesus' tomb a good amount of money to tell people that the disciples had come and stolen the body while they slept. You can read about that in Matthew 28. Um, I have to believe that the amount of money that the the Jewish authorities paid those guards must have been a vast sum because uh, had they been found to be sleeping at the tomb while they should have been standing guard, their life would have, lives would have been forfeit. And then there's the mass hallucination theory that says that the over 500 people that the gospel writers claim saw Jesus alive were in fact all suffering from the trauma of extremely extreme loss and simply saw what they wanted to see. And those who championed this theory didn't apparently get the memo. The mass hallucinations really don't happen. For a fuller presentation on the answer to the question, did Jesus really rise from the dead, I would refer you to my message on Easter Sunday, April 4th. Uh, You can see that online on our website or... um, on YouTube, uh, I endeavored to answer the question that day whether it's reasonable or credible to believe that Jesus Christ was literally and physically raised from the dead. That is, is it possible to believe in the resurrection of Jesus without checking your brain at the door and committing intellectual suicide? And the answer is yes. We've recently explored the Old Testament scriptures that predicted his resurrection on the third day. We've looked recently at Jesus' own repeated predictions of his suffering and death and resurrection on the third day. Let's look today at the words of the angels at the empty tomb. It's recorded in Luke 24. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they, meaning Mary Magdalene and another woman named Mary, Uh, They went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles But these words seemed to them, to the apostles themselves, an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So check out what the angels actually said here. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. 
Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. You see, the women came looking for a dead body, not a living one. Their mindset was not essentially different from that of the men, those 11 dismal, defeated, dejected, disillusioned disciples. But the women's perplexity gave way to crystal clarity, and we have to ask why. And I think the answer is this, that because the angels simply reminded them of what Jesus had taught them. And when they did, they remembered his words. Think about it. When they interpreted events in, in light of his word, their confusion gave way to clarity. When they interpreted events in the light of his word, their confusion gave way to clarity. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Finally, why does it matter? Why does it matter? To get at the answer to that question, go with me to the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it, where Paul reminds the believers in that city of the essentials of the gospel. In verses 1 to 2, he quickly lays down four facts about the gospel. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So a quick recap, the gospel is the message preached by the apostles. The gospel is the good news that's received by sinners. The gospel, third, is the only ground on which we may stand before God. And fourth, it's the message by which we are now in the process of being saved. In verses 3 to 4, Paul outlines then the essential elements of the gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And notice that he says the gospel is, is historical truth. It's historical truth. It's neither mythology nor allegory nor wishful thinking. The events of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the apostles say, took place in space and time. Notice also that the gospel is physical truth. Jesus was raised bodily from the grave. He, his body emerged from the tomb. Some have attempted to suggest that we can embrace a figurative resurrection without affirming a literal one. One theologian put it this way, we can't accept the, the idea that Jesus physically rose from the dead, but we do believe that he was resurrected in our hearts, which is entirely illogical because a dead Jesus doesn't do anyone any good. He isn't just a good idea. Check out verses 5 to 8 where Paul says that having been raised from the dead, Jesus appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, and then to the twelve, 
And he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, that is, they have died. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What I'd like you to see in that passage is the fourfold repetition of the phrase, he appeared. He appeared. Those appearances weren't of a ghost or a hologram. They were physical appearances. And, and, and during those appearances, Jesus ate with them. He cooked for them. He touched them. He allowed them to touch him. And in Acts chapter 1, Luke tells us that Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He appeared, he appeared, he appeared, he appeared. Paul also reminds us that the gospel is theological truth. It's theological truth. Verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15 says, Christ died for our sins. And this statement expresses the meaning of what theologians call substitutionary atonement. That is that when Christ died, he died in your place as your substitute. It should have been you. It should have been me. The death that he died was our death. Peter wrote, he himself bore our sins, our sins, in his body on the tree. From the second chapter of Genesis to the final chapter of Revelation, chapter 22, sin and death are coupled together. God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel saying that the soul who sins shall die. The soul who sins shall die. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. The soul that sins shall die. The apostle Paul wrote to the believers in Rome, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And he quickly adds, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. John Stott characterizes the message of the essential gospel this way, not that we will die for our sins, but that Christ died for our sins. We did the sinning. He did the dying. And then came the resurrection. And what he died to achieve, he did achieve. God was satisfied, and as proof of that fact, he raised him from the dead. In verses 12 to 19 of chapter 15, Paul makes clear that if the crucified Jesus of Nazareth has not, in fact, been physically raised from the dead, the implications and the consequences are really too appalling to contemplate. And he lists them. First, if Christ has not been raised, then the preaching of the apostles is in vain. Those who tell us about our salvation, their preaching is in vain. If the teaching of the apostles is in vain, then we have believed the message in vain. Third, if Christ has not been raised, 
and the apostles are shown to be liars, untrustworthy. Fourth, if the apostles are shown to be liars, then our faith is futile. Fifth, if Christ has not been raised, then we have no Savior, and we are still in our sins. Sixth, if Christ has not been raised, then those who have died believing in Jesus as their Savior have simply perished. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? It's hard to imagine oblivion, nothingness after death. Seventh, if Christ has not been raised, Paul says, then we Christians of all people are most to be pitied. Why? Because we've believed, proclaimed, and allowed ourselves to rest in a false hope. That's the reality. Christianity, like unlike other religions, is a historical religion. More specifically, what that means in the case of Christianity is that everything rises and falls on one historical event, and that is the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified on a Roman cross, physically, historically, in time and space from the dead. When I was a, a young man, there was a, a famous Christian recording artist that, that wrote a song, the chorus of which said, If heaven never was promised to me, neither the hope to live eternally, it's been worth just having the Lord in my life. And I used to really like that song until I really started to think about what was being said. Because if heaven was never promised to me, neither the hope to live eternally, then what that would mean is that Jesus himself did not rise from the dead. And it's not worth having him in my life. But having considered all of that, at verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul declares what he knows in his personal experience is true. And what he knows from the teaching of all of Scripture, but in fact Christ has been raised, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. See, here's the bottom line. The cross can only be the center and symbol of our faith if the one who died there was also raised from the dead. Otherwise, the cross only fits into the category of the hangman's noose or the electric chair or the guillotine or any other instruments of execution that you can name. It's, it's just an instrument of death. But because he was raised, because he is the first fruits, the promise of a greater harvest to come, you and I can be confident this morning that we who have trusted in him for our salvation will be raised again at the last day as well. Let me ask you this morning, are you living with that confidence? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Do you know that you have eternal life? It's as simple as transferring your trust from 
from your religion, from your morality, your cleverness, your prosecutorial skills to try to talk God into it at the, at the gates of heaven, transferring your trust from all of that simply to what Christ accomplished at the cross for you, of which he was vindicated by having raised, been raised from the dead. It's as simple as that. It's a transfer of trust. It's not joining a club. It's not, you know, becoming religious, as some people call it. Oh, that guy became religious. Hopefully not. We don't just become religious. We become Christian. We become more and more like Jesus Christ. But it's as simple as that. It's a transfer of trust. It's deciding that I'm not going to depend on all that stuff that I, all of my shtick, all of my, all of my stuff that I, that I use to kind of bolster myself up and impress others. I'm setting that aside and I'm trusting simply in the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the promise that goes with it that whoever believes in him will not perish at the last day, will not be abandoned to the tomb, but will have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today that Jesus was raised from the dead, that he is our Savior, he is our Lord, he is our soon-coming King, and as we anticipate next week, celebrating his ascension into heaven, his exaltation at your right hand. Lord, we we give praise and we are free because our sins are forgiven and we have the knowledge that death is not the end, nor is hell our destination. That one day we'll be in your very presence. Lord, I pray today for those who may be struggling with whether they will make that transfer of trust. And Lord, uh, may you give them today the gift of faith that leads to life, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.